Let us resume our Bible study this morning, turning to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is made up of two Hebrew words. Zephon, which means hidden, and the Yah is the Lord, so hidden by the Lord. It's often referred to as a very dark book of prophecy. But it's really not. It's really a very hopeful book. And I want to talk to you about why. It often references the day of the Lord in the book of Zephaniah. In fact, what is it, 23 times it uses the phrase the day of the Lord? So what's the book of Zephaniah about? No, it's about the Babylonian captivity. It's about how the Babylonian captivity teaches the day of the Lord. Why does God put all this history in the Bible? Is it to bore us? Ecclesiastes 1 says what's happened before will happen again. The history in the Bible is prophetic of what's coming. And if we study like we just read in the New Testament about how the Old Testament is there for us to learn from, we can learn a lot about that which is to come. So who is Zephaniah? One thing I want you to know is he is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, who was one of the greatest kings. He is a contemporary of Jeremiah. He's about 50 years after the prophet Nahum. So it's about the year 625 BCE, give or take. Do you have your list of kings and prophets from before? If you do, you don't. Okay. So, let's do this. Let's go back and look at Hezekiah and what follows Hezekiah. Hezekiah, let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 18. I want to set a historical background. It helps explain why Zephaniah is called to prophesy, to whom he's called to prophesy, and what he's called to prophesy about. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. Linda and I were talking before service about the king of Israel named Hosea. And he's mentioned here in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, it's the same as Hosea, it's spelled exactly the same, but for the prophet they take away the H, for the king they leave the H. The H should be there, so Hosea is really the name. It means salvation. Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. This Hezekiah is the one that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, when the prophet Isaiah said to king Ahaz, ask for me a son, ask of me a sign. And the king said, I won't ask for a sign. And Isaiah said, I'll give you one anyway. The virgin shall conceive. The word there is not actually virgin. It's Alma, which means a virtuous young woman. 
So the first fulfillment is the birth of Hezekiah, Ahaz's son. The ultimate fulfillment is the birth of Messiah, which was a virgin birth. So, okay. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Avi, which means my father, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Remember, in biblical Hebrew, father means any male ancestor, not just the one who gave birth to you. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. They made it an idol. Ugh, yuck. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. This is the great-great-grandfather of the prophet Zephaniah. Let's look quickly at 2 Kings 19, verses 1 to 8. 2 Kings 19, verses 1 to 8. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is the day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshaki. The Rabshaki was there from the king of Syria, bringing a message of destruction. Whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you've heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I'll cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. You know, that's exactly what happened, right? God slew 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. Sennacherib went home and was slaughtered by his own sons in the house of the temple of his God, as he was there crying to him, how come you didn't defeat the God down there? Verse 8, Then the Rabshagi returned and found a king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he departed from Achish. Same chapter, down to verse 20. So what did Hezekiah do when threatened by Assyria? He went to the Lord God, and the Lord took care of it. Verse 20, 28. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn, the daughter in Jerusalem. The daughters there refer to those unwalled villages, meaning they're not afraid. They're not running into the walled city for defense. They laugh at you. Has shaken her head behind your back. 
Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. Hmm. By your messengers you have reproached the Lord. And said, by the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear long ago how I made it? So the Lord says, you're saying you did all these things. You're not the one. How I made it from ancient times that I formed it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore their inhabitants had little power. God says you were only able to conquer because I permitted it. They were dismayed and confounded. Why? Because I confounded them. They were as grass to the field and the green herb and as the grass on the mountaintops and grain blighted before it is grown. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me. Etc. Let's go to chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. We're still just setting this scene. 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. We haven't got a question out there from Go to Meeting Land. Let's see. What do the sages say about dual prophecies? That there's lots of dual prophecies. Lots of them. Okay, verse 2. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. So as soon as he hears he's sick and he's going to die, he goes to the Lord in prayer. Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart. Is that a true statement? That's what God said about him, yeah. And have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. It happened before Isaiah had gone up out into the middle court that the word Lord came to him saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake. And for the sake of my servant David. And that is of course what he did. When he destroyed the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. He did it himself. Which was a picture of what? Remember the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38? Who destroys the armies of Gog and Magog? The Lord himself does, just like he did in the days of Assyria. Now Hezekiah is followed by his son Manasseh. So let's go to 2 Kings 21 and start in verse 1. Did Manasseh continue the wonderful works of his father Hezekiah? Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord 
according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and raised up altars for Baal, and made a wooden image, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. Altars to whom? These pagan gods. Where did he build them? In the temple. In the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I'll put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he made his son pass through the fire, that is, he sacrificed him to Moloch. Practice Seuss saying, used witchcraft. What does the Bible say? You shall not suffer a witch to live. And instead, here's the king leading the people in witchcraft and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. I don't want to read anymore. That doesn't get any better. He was followed by his son, Ammon. Go to page, or 2 Kings 21, verse 19. Did he go back to the ways of Hezekiah or did he follow the ways of Manasseh? 2 Kings 21, verse 19. Ammon was 22 years old and became king and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name is Meshulamet, the daughter of Haruz of Joppa. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. So he continues the ways of Manasseh. Verse 21 says, So he walked in all the ways that his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. He forsook the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Then the servants of Ammon, well, that's enough of that one. Now after Ammon comes Josiah. So let's go to 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 3. 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 3. Are we there? Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azalah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which he had been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. Let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord, to repair the damages of the house, etc. 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 3 is long into the reign of Josiah. How long? He's been king for 18 years before he has the revelation that he needs to rebuild and restore the temple, lead the people back to God. What led him to that realization, according to the ancients, is Zephaniah was prophesying to Josiah before his repentance. They say that Zephaniah was one of the reasons that Josiah repented and came back to God. How's that for an introduction? Zephaniah 
caused Josiah to repent and begin the reformation of Israel back to the Lord. I like that. Okay, so let us go back to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, and we haven't started that yet. We're still in the introduction. Yes, ma'am. Um, it was 30 years after God gave the prophecy in Genesis 15 to Abraham about his descendants going into captivity and coming out in the fourth generation. It was 30 years after that that Isaac was born. Okay, if you go back to 2 Kings 22, verse 3, it wasn't 30 years, but you said, or something like that. So let's go to 2 Kings 22, verse 3. That isn't it either. Okay. Sorry. Um, okay. So, the prophecies in Zephaniah were written during the reign of Josiah who's known to us as a good king, but who was the son of Ammon, the son of Manasseh, two of the most wicked kings in the history of Judah. The reign of Josiah was influenced by Zephaniah and began what's called the Age of Revival, which started in 621 BCE. And it's described in 2 Chronicles 34, verses 3 to 7. So let's go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. 2 Chronicles 34, verses 3 through 7. Second Chronicles 34, beginning of verse 3, it says, Oops, I got two questions out there and go to me. Let's see. What verse was that in 2 Kings? We looked at 2 Kings 18, 1 to 6, 2 Kings 19, 1 to 8, 2 Kings 19, 20 to 28, 2 Kings 20, verses 1 to 6, 2 Kings 21, verses 1 to 12. 2 Kings 21, verses 19 to 22, and 2 Kings 22, beginning in verse 3. Oh, then it says, never mind. Okay. Sorry. I should read to the bottom, I guess. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, beginning in verse 3, says, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, that is Josiah, he began to seek the God of his father David. In the twelfth year began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded, molded images. They, bre- they broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And the incense altars which were above them he cut down. And the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images he broke in pieces and made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. That was prophesied back in 1 Kings 13, more than 400 years ago. 
that he would do that, and he did it. He also burned the bones of the, king, of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. 1 Kings 13, verse 2. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and all around with axes. When he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Did Zephaniah have an influence? Oh, did he ever. One thing that the state... What's that, Rachel? Uh, so, in Second uh, Kings 18, when it said that Hezekiah, there was no other king like him, after him or before him, it's because... Uh, we, I thought Josiah was a godly king, but it was only because of Zephaniah, and if Zephaniah hadn't or preached repentance, then he wouldn't have turned from uh, his evil ways from his father and his uh, grandfather. Right. Josiah had to learn, and he learned from Zephaniah. But he didn't learn immediately. It took him a while, as we just read. Thank you. Yep. They say in the sages' writings that no prophet paints a darker picture of God's judgment or a brighter picture of Israel's future glory. And his purpose is to turn Israel and the world back to God like Josiah turned his heart. From one following after the ways of the world to one seeking after the ways of God with all their heart. Zephaniah is often referred to in Jewish writings as the orator. The orator because of his writing style. He writes as if he's talking directly to your heart. He mentions the day of the Lord more than any of the other minor prophets. It's 18 times he mentions the day of the Lord. How many chapters is in Zephaniah? Just three. So in three chapters he mentions the day of the Lord 18 times. The reason he does that is to keep our focus on judgment day. Because if you keep your focus on judgment day, you will walk more uprightly before the Lord. His writing, this book of Zephaniah, is called the Compendium of All Prophecy, even though it's only three chapters long. Purpose is to show what the day of the Lord will mean to the ungodly versus the godly. If you hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, come into the kingdom prepared for you from the time of my fathers, you're going to go, woohoo. If he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness, you're going to go, uh-oh. And Matthew chapter 5 says that those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever, just like Daniel 12 does. And Matthew chapter 7 says, and those who think they're saved and yet walk in the ways of the world, when they come to judgment day are going to hear, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are the Lord's own words, not mine. So his purpose is to say sin leads to judgment, but repentance leads to forgiveness.
And the theme of the book is the day of the Lord, although the immediate context is the Babylonian captivity. As I've said over the last few weeks, the Babylonian captivity comes in three ways. When God brought Nebuchadnezzar in the first time, he said, go with them into captivity. And those who obeyed the Lord went. Just like when the Lord says, come up hither, all those who listen to the Lord will ascend at the rapture. And then a few years later, God had Nebuchadnezzar come back again. And those who refused to go the first time, but who had turned back to the Lord by the second time, obeyed him and went into Babylon. About the middle of the tribulation period, God says, when you see the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then go to Petra, and they will leave Jerusalem and go to Petra. At the time of the Babylonian captivity, those who refused to go both opportunities into Babylon, God destroyed. Those who refused to obey the command of the Lord and go to Petra, what happens to them in Jerusalem? They get destroyed. So there's a lot of parallels, a lot of pictures. And with that, let's get on to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. Zephaniah, again, is made up of two words. Zephon, which is the Hebrew word 6845, and it means hidden. And Yah is short form for the tetragrammaton. So hidden by the Lord or hidden of the Lord. And one thing that Zephaniah is going to focus on is the rapture and the resurrection. And that you do not have to go through the wrath of God being poured out in the world. So verse 1 says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. There's the good king Hezekiah. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So during Josiah's reign, Jeremiah prophesied in the public marketplaces. That's the prophet we're studying on Friday night. Jeremiah's in the public marketplaces prophesying down in Jerusalem and Judah. Whereas Zephaniah prophesied in the synagogues. And Huldah, <laughs> the Jewish sages say, prophesied for the women. That's not what my Bible says. How about yours? Let's go back to 2 Kings. Huldah was a great prophetess and not just to the women. 2 Kings chapter 22, starting in verse 14. Second Kings chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. Says, so Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Achbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Hulda the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva. What does Tikva mean? Hope. Uh huh. The son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. Then she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man whom you sent to me, so who's that? 
Who's the prophecy for? The king. Not just to the women. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me. What did they do to forsake God? They failed to keep his commandments, statutes, and judgment. And they burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place, and shall not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Back to Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 2. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. When? When's that going to happen? In the day of the Lord. That's what we're going to find. When it says, I will utterly consume, that word utterly isn't actually in the scripture. It's an infinitive of emphasis, where God uses an infinitive form of the same verb that follows it to emphasize it, to say, I really, really mean it. So God is saying here that if you think I'm joking, you're wrong. Remember, the false prophets were telling the people, God wouldn't destroy this city. It'll stand forever. God says, I'm absolutely going to consume what? Everything from the face of the land. God's going to destroy Judah and Jerusalem completely. And from the face of the land, the word is not land. The word is ground, the dirt. He says, I'm going to take it down to the dirt. That means the houses are going to fall, the temple's going to fall, the gates are going to fall, the walls are going to fall. He's talking about destruction like they could not even imagine. Verse 3 says, I will consume man and beast, which means nobody's going to be left. There will not be a person left alive in Jerusalem when God is done with that third wave of the Babylonian captivity. The only ones who remain alive have fled because God said, if you flee, I'll let you live. So I'll consume man and beast. I'll consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks. Ding, ding, ding. That means the idols. The idols that they're relying upon, that they put in the temple of God, that they're praying to, that they're hoping will deliver them. God said, I'm going to destroy them too. Along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. How is it that Jeremiah survived? His utter destruction here says, with the wicked. Jeremiah is not one of the wicked. He's one of the servants of God. And those, he got to take a few that were 
righteous like he was out of the city, and the rest perished. And it ends with, says the Lord, to emphasize. Notice he says, says the Lord at the end of verse 2 and at the end of verse 3. Why do you think he keeps saying that? Is this just an idle threat? Uh, no, it's not just an idle threat. As history will bear it out. Verse 4 says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. Understand, in Exodus chapter 19, God betrothed Israel to himself. The word Baal means husband. So here's the betrothed wife of God calling an idol husband. How many of you guys would think that was a good thing if this was your wife? Answer is no. And this is why God refers to idolatry as adultery. I'll cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. Notice the word pagans in italics. What does that mean? It's not in the original. It means that the priests that are still leading services to God are not truly leading services to God. Their hearts are with the idols. But they figure if they throw God a lamb now and then, then everything's square. And it's not. We just read how um, Hezekiah's descendants filled the temple in Jerusalem with idols of all kinds. Verse 5. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. What's that mean? The housetops tended to be flat. People would go up in the summertime when it was heat to go up and be outside to let the breezes blow through. But in every housetop, they built a pagan altar for their pagan idol. Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. It's not that they deny that the Lord is God. They just list him as one of the gods. Any god will do, right? That's all Satan cares about. So long as you're not simply dedicated to God, he doesn't care how many gods you worship. But you know what? Does that phrase in verse 5, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, does that make you think of anything in Isaiah around chapter 4? If not, let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah 4 is how Jerusalem's going to be when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom, and all idolatry has been abolished, done away with. Isaiah chapter 4. We'll start in verse 2 because that gives us a time frame. It says, in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. That's a time yet future to us. The branch of the Lord. That word there is not Netzer, it's Zamak. Zamak is the word used for branch when it refers to Messiah every place except Isaiah 11, which uses the word Netzer. 
which is where you get the prophecy that Messiah would grow up in Nazareth. The branch of the Lord, refers to Messiah, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth, which refers to the believers and also the crops that are produced, shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. How many of you have seen pictures of Israel from, oh, say, the days of Samuel Clemens? Who was Samuel Clemens? Mark Twain. It is so desolate, nobody lives there. It's malaria-infested swamps and barren deserts. Look at Israel today. They grow the most beautiful fruits and vegetables and flowers. They even supply most of the tulips to Holland. And they grow the most beautiful blue bags, don't they? The blue bag tree. Yeah, the bananas are covered with blue bags. So you see blue bags all over trees, over Galilee. And people go, oh, look at all the blue bag trees. Yeah, they're bananas. Bananas in Israel are not like bananas here. Bananas here are very bland and flavorless. Over there, they are the sweetest, most wonderful things. But I digress. For those of Israel who have escaped, a reference to Zechariah 13, the fact that two-thirds of Israel will perish in the day of the Lord. But Verse 3, And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion, which is prophetic Jerusalem, and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Who will be? Everyone. Everyone who's recorded among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. This is Jeremiah 31, 34. And purge the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment, by the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place, above every dwelling place, those that used to have all those pagan idols on them. Every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day. The shining of a flaming fire by night. What does that represent? That represents Messiah, how God dwelt with Israel in the wilderness. He's going to be over each and every one of those houses. Not pagan idols, not pagan altars, but the Lord himself. It says, for over all the glory there will be a covering. That says nothing. The word covering there is chupa, C-H-U-P-P-A-H, chupa. What is that? That's the marriage canopy. Who dwells under the marriage canopy but the bride? So all those who come out of the tribulation period saved by faith, the bride of Messiah. Verse 16, there will be a tabernacle. What is the Feast of Tabernacles? Teach about the Messianic kingdom. There be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge, and for a shelter from storm and rain. So let us go back to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 5. Instead of the pagan idols and the pagan altars, there will be in the kingdom of Messiah, Messiah dwelling in the chuppah, the wedding canopy, over each of those housetops. Verse 5 went on, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but also swear by Milcom. Who is Milcom? That is Moloch. Mm -hmm. It re refers to their king, which was Moloch. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 18. Moloch. 
Moloch was the pagan god to whom they sacrificed the children. The idol had a hole in its belly with a fire burning and its arms outstretched. They would lay the child in the outstretched arm, slit the child's throat, and roll him screaming into the fire. And they thought that was a good idea, huh? Leviticus 18, verse 21. Remember, we just read about the king of Judah doing this with their own children. Leviticus 18, 21 says, And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So it's not like God didn't tell them hundreds of years before, don't you ever do it. So why did they do it? Because he said, don't do it. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. What do you call it when you're giving oaths to God, but also oaths to Moloch? You're taking the name of the Lord in vain, but when you're doing both, that's called... Syncretism. Go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, to the Laodiceans. There's all kinds of names for it, and none of them are good. Yes, Nancy. Whoops. Sorry, hit that, from it. That's okay. She didn't mean to open her mic. Okay. Revelation 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write. These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Notice they think they can do both. They can worship God and the idols. They can keep some commandments. They can violate others. They can pick and choose. It goes on to say, verse 17, Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have needed nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments. What does that mean? Repentance. That you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase, and therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. That's table fellowship. That's acceptance. To him who overcomes, that's 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. I will grant to sit with me on my throne, that is, as kings and priests, which is the promise of Revelation 1, 6 and 7. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the Gospels, Messiah always said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, it's not that way anymore. It's he who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an ear to hear means who wants to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear means everybody. Wayne. Yes, sir, Edmund. 
Do you think the white garments there uh, uh, connect to the ones in Revelation, which says the righteous deeds, are, uh, the the white the white garments are the righteous deeds of the saints? Yep. Go to Revelation chapter nineteen, verse eight. And to her, this is the bride of Messiah. It was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Ooh. What if you're walking in lawlessness instead of righteousness? That's when you are naked. Back to Zephaniah. Chapter 1. Verse 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. That's why we had to, in the introduction, go back to Hezekiah. We're just a couple generations removed from Hezekiah, who tore down all the idols, destroyed all those altars, cleansed the country of all that idolatry. So it's not that they didn't have a good starting point, but they turned back from it. They were put on the right path and said, no, you can't make us. It's like we see in Jeremiah. In chapter 17, God said, if you will just keep the Sabbath, I will not destroy Jerusalem. I will not destroy Judah. I will not cease to have a descendant of David on your throne forever and ever. In chapter 18, the people say, I'm paraphrasing, you may as well stop flapping your gums because we're not going to do it. We're going to do what we want to and you can't change our minds. So this is what he's talking about in verse 6. Those that are going to be ultimately destroyed, completely destroyed, they're the wicked because they turned back from following the Lord. They made a conscious choice to turn back to idolatry which is an affront and offense to the Lord our God. And have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. So they followed for a while, but then they turned back. Good thing the New Testament doesn't talk about that, does it? Go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter was written by Peter. And you all go, well, we knew that. Peter was one of the Amha'arets. That is the people of the land, the common people. He was a fisherman. He didn't know how to eloquently tickle your ears. He just told it like it was. So go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. And you knew I was going there, didn't you, Daniel? Yep. In 2 Peter 2, let's start in verse 1 to give us context. But there were also false prophets among the people. At the time of the Babylon captivity, Jerusalem was full of false prophets telling the people not to worry. Jeremiah is wrong. The Lord will not bring destruction on this place. We can continue in our sin and God doesn't care. It says, even as there will be false teachers among you, these false teachers of today will say, God doesn't want you to repent he wants you to make a statement of faith and then go back to your sins so everybody can see how gracious and merciful God is. 
Well, what does Romans 6 verses 1 and 2 say? What then? Shall we continue in sin and grace may abound? What's the answer? No way. God forbid. Mejanoito. No way, Jose. However you want to put it. Paul says no. That's the wrong attitude. When you get saved, then your heart should lead you to obedience. So we're here in 2 Peter chapter 2 to start at verse 18, which says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So he says, they reach those who have turned back to God, who have repented, and lead them back into a way of sin. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Just put in your note, Romans 6.16. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage, meaning slavery and depravity. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, so they've been saved by faith, they're again entangled in them, that is in the sins of the world, the pollutions of the world, and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Does that say once saved, always saved to you? It does not. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. That word holy is hagios, the same word that's used here in the New Testament for the saints. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. And a sow, what's a sow? A pig, having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So what does Peter say? When you turn to the Lord, repent and grasp hold of the Lord, there are false teachers who are going to say, no, 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 no. It's okay to turn back to sin. You can be gay. You can indulge in the drugs. You can engage in the sins of the world. And it's okay now. Do you ever hear that? Is there a preacher down in Atlanta that's famous for teaching the commandments of God don't apply to you? Last name might be Stanley, but we won't go there. Yeah, might be. Okay, back to Zephaniah chapter 1. Verse 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Keep a finger here. Go to Romans 8. Romans 8. Starting in verse 19. Romans 8, beginning in verse 19. Whoa, whoa, I got five questions or comments out here from Go to Meeting Land. Let's see. Jeremiah, reference, give me the Sabbath. Jeremiah 17. Okay, people already answered the question. Okay. Verse 19 of Romans 8 says, For the earnest expectation of the creation, it means the whole world, everything, man, women, plants, animals, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So when Messiah returns, the animals stop killing people. They stop killing each other. There's no violence. The world, again, the, the earth produces bountifully. There's no hurt. It be, it's going to be a wonderful place. Verse 22, 4, because we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. What's Paul trying to tell us? What should we abide in? In hope. Eagerly waiting for Messiah's return to establish the kingdom, to rule and reign. And what a beautiful place it's going to be. Verse 7. We're going to get into dual fulfillment prophecy again, near term and far term. It says, be silent in the presence of the Lord God. Actually, it should be in the presence of my Lord, the Lord. For the day of the Lord is at hand. See that phrase, the day of the Lord? Like I said, it's going to appear 18 times in these three chapters. Is at hand means what? It's here. Right. Yes, ma'am. Um, in other verses, it says, on that day. That's still the day of the Lord, right? One of the we'll have to look and see what the Hebrew says. Okay. Yeah. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. The near-term fulfillment of this is the Babylonian captivity. That Babylon is going to come in and destroy all those that remain in Jerusalem. Because God has told them repeatedly to leave Jerusalem and they refuse. Because the false prophets tell them there's no reason to go. That Jeremiah is wrong. The Lord will never destroy this place. He'll never let his temple be destroyed. It won't happen. So the day of the Lord is foreshadowed by the destruction by Babylon. The long-term fulfillment is the tribulation period. Day of the Lord is at hand. Let's go look at a place where the day of the Lord is at hand is a reference to the tribulation period to come. Go to Zechariah 14. Verse 1. Zechariah 14, verse 1 says, Behold! Shut up and listen. This is important. The day of the Lord is coming, meaning it's at hand. It's here. And your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. You know, a hundred years ago, that wasn't even possible. 
Not until the establishment of the United Nations would all the nations of the world act in concert and in unison. You know, I saw an interesting news article that has left me a little bit confused. I just saw it yesterday. It said that the United Nations is removing, is evacuating its people from New York City to Kenya in anticipation of something that's coming to New York City. But they didn't say what, so I have to watch and see. Look also to the book of Joel, chapter 2. Who pays for everything at the United Nonsense? Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So let us go back to Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 7. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. Does that make you think of something that happens in Revelation where the seal is open and what? There's silence in heaven. Yeah. For the day of the Lord's at hand, meaning it's come, it's here. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He's invited his guests. What kind of sacrifice? Talking about the destruction of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Who's going to eat the sacrifice? The birds and the animals. Yep. Everybody go yucky poo. Verse 8. And it shall be. Oh, wait a minute. I have gone over time. I apologize. The batteries are dying in that clock back there, and I thought it said 1140. It doesn't. So sorry. So we'll stop here. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 8. Let's close in prayer.